Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Bible Reading Show. It's Monday, March the 1st, and today we are looking at Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 50, Luke chapter 15, Job 30, and 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Uh, this is live. It is live. It will always be live from my home here in Cambridge in the UK. My name is Calvin. Why don't we begin by praying? Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us in your word about your Son and help us to treasure this word that points us always to Jesus and his sacrifice for us on the cross. Help us to see this and to hear this, especially today as we read your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I pray that specifically because I know that we're going through Exodus chapter 12 and we'll be looking at the Passover. So if there is one thing in the Old Testament that points to Jesus, um, it is the sacrifice that saves the whole nation of Israel from slavery, that saves them through his sacrifice, through this blood that is spilt uh, on their behalf. So we're looking at Exodus chapter 12 from verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. <clears throat> Excuse me. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through um, to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by the service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. <clears throat> Excuse me, I just had my dinner. <clears throat> At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks and herds as you've said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks <clears throat> on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides men and w women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, 
and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was night. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept by the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised them. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So here we have you know, the final plague that finally frees them from Egypt, the killing of the firstborn. And I was just struck by how it says that there was not a house where there was not a death. And just how, you know, it took this kind of widespread plague and killing for them to be freed by Pharaoh and just how extreme this judgment had to be. Uh, but it begins with a sacrifice. So something else dies first before this death comes upon the land. So there is this death of this Passover lamb. Keep reading this word Passover, Passover, verse 21. Select the lambs and kill the Passover lamb. So that, that's the name for it. After the action of God passing over your houses. But not passing over the houses that didn't have the blood of this Passover lamb on the doorposts. And I mentioned yesterday that in Chinese tradition, we have something similar. You know, in Chinese New Year, you hang that red cloth over the doorposts and it hangs down from the two sides. And some say that it actually comes from this tradition of having that blood visible on the entrance of that home. So it, in essence, it's saying that a death has already happened. This lamb has died, and so the firstborn in this home will not die. Again, um, there are so many foreshadowings of Jesus. You know, Jesus had this uh, meal, this Passover meal. He died during the Passover. He was this Passover lamb that was sacrificed for the entire nation of Israel. So what happens? What is it that passes over this home when it sees the blood? Verse 23, the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. God himself will perform this miracle. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So there's this mention of the destroyer, but also of the Lord 
and the Lord passing over. And hence again, that's where the name comes from. Almost like skip, skipping this house, skipping this judgment upon this home where death has already occurred. And as a result, the Egyptians um, kicked them out. You know, that very night, verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh's household, his eldest son as well, was struck down, who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive, who was in dungeon. So every layer of society, every firstborn, even the firstborn of the livestock, all died. And in that night, verse 30, Pharaoh rose up, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in all of Egypt. Can you imagine hearing that from every house? You know, think of all your neighbors, every cry, every household. There was a death, and there was this cry of mourning, of shock and terror and just dread. For there was not a house, verse 30, where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron. Again, you see this phrase again, by night, by night, by night. Just immediately, this just triggered this domino effect of Pharaoh just wanting to get rid of them, them having to leave, no time to repair. And in one night, you know, they were freed. So Pharaoh says to them, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, 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 serve the Lord, as you said. Take your flocks and herds, as you've said. Be gone and bless me also. And towards the end, he says, bless me. He's fearful of them. He hates them. But he realizes that they worship God. Hence, he says, go and worship your God, serve your God, and then bless me as you worship your God. It's interesting as well. There's a lot of worship language embedded inside this last plague, unlike the other plagues. You know, verse 25, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he's promised, you shall keep this service. You think of church service, you think of ministry, but actually it's the idea of worship. There'll be the sacrifice. And when the children say to you, what do you mean by this service or this sacrifice? You will say that it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. And so the idea of sacrifice is you offer something up to God. And that's the basis of worship. Worship is not just singing songs or hearing a sermon, but that God is looking upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore causing us to be seen as acceptable or offering them, offering them to be seen as holy and acceptable before him. Here God sees the offering of the Passover lamb. And it's interesting that initially, you know, when Moses was always asking Pharaoh to let them go, if you remember those requests that we may go and worship the Lord, offer the sacrifices to him, Pharaoh says, no, 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 you can't leave, worship him here. That's what they did. They worshiped God through the killing of the sacrifice of this lamb, and it resulted in the killing of everyone in Egypt, every firstborn. So Pharaoh essentially got what he asked for. They worshiped God in Egypt, and as a result, the rest of the Egyptians, the people around them who enslaved them, were judged and experienced death through this act of worship. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people, send them out of the land. It says, otherwise we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leaven. What's this description of this dough? There's quite a lot of it, kneading bowls around their cloaks. 
it's again uh, symbolic of the dough that for the last for the next seven days they're not supposed to have any yeast and therefore the bread doesn't have time to um, you would think why why are they making bread but God told them to do this it's meant to symbol symbolize again that hurriedness and that rush to get prepared so the dough was inside the kneading bowls as they carried it out of Egypt but that wasn't the only thing that they carried out of Egypt they also brought silver and gold verse 35 they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry for clothing and the Lord gave people the people favor in the sight of Egyptians and so they plundered the Egyptians. The idea of plundering again is something that you do as you defeat an enemy. But they hadn't done any fighting. There was no war. But God fought this war on their behalf. And so there's this plundering. They've defeated the enemy. So they traveled verse 37 from Ramses to Sukkoth. 600,000 men on foot. You know, imagine again, 70 people, 72 people travel with Jacob down to Egypt. 430 years later, 600,000 men, it says not including women and children, meaning it would go up to at least a million, if not two million or more, you know, Egypt, not Egyptians, Israelite slaves who had now multiplied in Egypt. And this was a whole new nation that was leaving this land. Uh, multitude went with them as well. Verse 38, mixed multitudes. So not all just Israelites, but mixed, you know, people from different races and different ethnicities. Now identifying with them as God's people. Lots of livestock, both flocks and herd. And again, this unleavened bread business. Verse 39, they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor did, had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Aha, uh -huh, so this is a new detail. You know, they couldn't prepare something for the journey. You know, it's not like, you know, you go on a long journey where you bring snacks or you go on a plane. You remember when they give you like peanuts and then, oh, what would you like to have for your meal? And usually in my Malaysian um, flight back home, I usually have like nasi lemak. Oh, that was so nice. I look forward to that. They had none of that, no food for the journey. Um, they only had this uh, unleavened cakes. They had just to quickly bake it because, you know, they have kids, you know, they have to feed them along the way. They don't know how long this journey is going to take. So that was all they had, just this very hurriedly prepared snack for this long journey ahead. Verse 40, the time they spent in Egypt was 430 years. And on that very day, verse 41, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And this idea of hosts of the Lord is a word describing armies. You know, essentially, God has raised up this army that didn't fight, that God fought on behalf of this army. But you also remember how um, Pharaoh in chapter 1 was worried that they would rise up and attack the nation. They didn't do that. God did this on their behalf. And it was a night of watching to bring them out of Egypt. So this becomes this tradition, therefore, on the Passover to kind of stay up and to watch for what God would do. They were kept by the Lord throughout their generations. And verse 43 ends with this ongoing celebration. You know, it's not just a one-off event, but there is to be this memorial to look back as to how God saved the entire nation through his act and through his will and through his promise alone this is the statue of the passover verse 43 he says no foreigner shall eat of it but every slave 
bought by money may eat of it after you've circumcised him. And it's symbolic again of God saving his people. He saves them to be his people. And it's not something that God extends outside of his people. It shows, therefore, when Jesus, you know, dies for his people, um, how shocking it is that, therefore, this offer of salvation ex is extended outside those ethnic and religious lines of the Jews, but now goes to the Gentiles. How amazing it is that this salvation of the true Passover lamb, God's son himself, is extended beyond Israel. But what happens then is that they are brought into Israel. We are brought in as his people. And so we are meant to celebrate this as his memorial, to, to remember constantly Jesus. One way we do this is, of course, through communion. You know, every time we break the bread and we drink of the cup, we remember, we bring to mind again that Passover lamb until he returns. Yeah, in verse 47, all the congregation of Israel shall keep it, all the churches shall keep it. And yeah, uh, and no one who is not a people, a, one of the people of God may do this. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, let all his males be circumcised, meaning not just him, but his entire family needs to be incorporated into this nation of God. Then he may come near and eat it. He shall be as a native of the land. Interesting that God already promises this land that they don't have yet. They haven't been to yet, but God already gives it as this package deal. You've been saved now, but you're saved for eternity to enter into this blessing of God, into this land, into this provision, into this relationship with God. It's as if it's already done. And therefore, God gives this provision that to, be, to remind them of this one act, but also that they will point forward to the fulfillment of this promise that he'll give them this new land, this promised land. Yep, and verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. It's because of their obedience to his word that, you know, they sacrificed the lamb, they painted the doorposts, that therefore they were spared from this judgment and therefore they were saved from this slavery. Yeah, it was true obedience to everything that God had commanded them through Moses and Aaron. Yep, so that's Exodus chapter 12. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, 
Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I've lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's this joy and emphasis and treasuring of this one sinner, of this one sheep, compared to the 99, compared to the rest which are safe. You know, heaven rejoices over this one sinner. You know, if you're a Christian, at one point of time, you were that one sinner, and heaven rejoiced. Over your coming into repentance and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but this again, this one individual, one rep- act of repentance, response to Jesus Christ, is contrasted with the ninety-nine who don't need to. You know, what situations would you find yourself rejoicing over just one, as opposed to ninety-nine? Well, um, I, I, mean, I recall a friend who told me how you know their kid. Was one day walked off and they lost their kid for a while, and then finding their kid, what a relief it was! And it's the idea that something you're losing something that is precious to you, that you really want to, re- you really want to recover. And the Pharisees and the teachers of law, they don't see that. Verse fifteen, they see that sinners were coming to Jesus, and he's eating with them, and you're thinking, why is Jesus hanging out with them, and not with us? Now that's the idea. It's not just comparing Jesus with the sinners, but the sinners with themselves. You know, Jesus came to Cambridge. He will come, of course, to my church because my church is where you know it's all at. You know, it's the hot stuff. You know, we are all the people who preach the gospel really well. We are. The, no, no, no. Jesus comes for the sinners who realize that they need Jesus, who are drawn to Him, and the idea of Him eating with them is that He wants to have a relationship with them. He really, ha- he, I mean, it's not just let's do lunch. It's not that formal, informal thing, but that he does life with them. Whenever we eat with someone, we spend time with them. It's that quantity time, not just quality time, but that every moment that is treasured because it's part of that ongoing relationship with him. Jesus hangs out with them, meaning Jesus is not ashamed to be identified with them. And he's saying, why isn't he identifying with us, the Pharisees, the good guys? Hanging out with the bad guys, Jesus gives the answer, because they realize they need repentance. Verse seven, over, 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 just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than the ninety-nine who need no repentance. They don't see their need of repentance. They don't see their need of Jesus, and so it's not the 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 separation or the difference between the good guys and the bad guys, but the people who see that they need Jesus and the people who don't. And Jesus is saying most people say that they don't. Most people say that they don't need any help. They don't need any forgiveness. They're okay. But it's the one who says, "I need, I need this. You know, I can't do without this." That Jesus not only says, "I've come for you. I rejoice over you. I've come all this way to search for you." You know, the sheep again. You know, that one sheep leaving the ninety-nine, and that one coin. You know, and rejoicing with her neighbors. You know, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, lost coin, lost sheep, but finally a lost son. Verse eleven, and he said, "There is a man. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, 'Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me.' And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living." 
And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He hit ground zero. You know, there's a real low from having that high of receiving all his inheritance from his dad. He goes up to his dad. He says, "Give me my share of the property." That is coming to me, essentially saying, "I wish you were dead, so that I can just get the money that is due to me." And it's really insulting to the dad, but the dad gives it to him. It says he divided his property between them. This idea of property is almost his life. He broke up his life and gave his life to him. Verse thirteen, and not very soon later, you know, he took all his money, went off, went off, and spent it in this foreign country in wild living and reckless living. It says, verse thirteen, did everything of his heart's desired, but then he spent everything. Verse fourteen, and then there was this severe famine. So, it, if the story ended here, you go, haha, God is judging you. <laughs> this severe famine throughout the country, and then he became hungry. He ended up working for this. Pig farm, and you know, for a Jewish person, you know, to work in a pig farm, you couldn't go near pigs. You're going to touch pigs, but now you have to work to feed the pigs. And he longed to even eat the food from the pigs. That was just how desperate and low he was. Verse seventeen. But when he came to himself, he said, "How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger." I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, "Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son." But the father said to his servants, "Bring quickly." The best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his finger, on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son was dead and is alive again, and he was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. You know, this one sheep that was lost, this one coin that was lost, this one son that was lost. This makes sense. Celebrating over this one wayward son, who's now returned to his family, he came back thinking they would say, "I am not worthy to be called your son." He rehearses it actually before this. So, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. You know, treat me like one of your servants. You know, I'm not coming back because I deserve forgiveness. I don't. But you are merciful and you treat your servants so well. I just want to be treated like that, rather than to be treated like that with the pigs. You know, I know that you're gracious, but I don't deserve this forgiveness. So he rehearses it, and when he sees his father, he starts that speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to say, "Treat me like one of your hired men," but he doesn't get to say that. Because immediately his father interrupts him. His father sees him from afar, meaning he's been looking out for him every day. Sees him from afar. It says he runs to him. He felt compassion and he embraced him and he kissed him. My son is back home. He orders his servants bring the best robe. You know, put it on him. You know, dress him up. Dress him up like the son that he, the status that he deserves as a son. You know, put shoes on his feet, and then kill the fattened calf. 
you know, this expensive animal that's usually killed during large celebrations. They used to do that back in Malaysia during certain festivals, like for a whole village, you sacrifice one cow and then the meat will be distributed amongst the whole village. But no, this is just for this one son to have this big celebration that everyone can rejoice that he was lost, but now is found, was dead, and is alive again. I know it should end here. You know, this is where the other two parables end. But it doesn't. There is an epilogue. There is this end credit scene of this other son coming home. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard this music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked them what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, he doesn't even call him dad. He said, look, you, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, not my brother, he's your son. You're not my father. You are just look. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, and he said to him, the father says to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And here you see that the father has two lost sons, not just one who ran away, but this other son who stayed at home who did everything right. You know, he never squandered his money, but he still never considered his father his father. He still had this broken relationship. He doesn't call him father. He doesn't consider his brother his brother. And he says, you know, I've served you all these years as a servant. Essentially, that's how he sees himself, just as this hired hand. He's just looking for the payment. And the father reminds him, I'm your dad. All this actually does belong to you. What do you mean payment? You have everything, including your brother. And it's just right that you rejoice over the inheritance that you have because you're my son, but also the brother that you have because you are my son and I'm your father. You should be celebrating. You should be glad because your brother was dead and he's alive and he's now found. Jesus is telling this parable not to the sinners, not to the people he's eating with, but the people who refuse to join them in this meal, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who have been obeying God in a sense, yes, they've done all the good things, they haven't squandered their lives and wild living, and therefore they think they, they're owed by God. But actually they're just acting like servants. They're doing it for that payment. And when they see someone else receiving that rejoicing and that celebration for free, he said, you know, that's, they don't deserve that. I deserve that because I worked for it. But Jesus is saying, you know, that's your brother. I'm your, you know, you know I, I'm, we're in the same family. We should rejoice when someone who's lost is brought back from the dead. Uh, Tim Keller makes a really good point. Uh, he compares the first two parables with the third. You know, in the first two parables, you know, there's someone that goes out to look for the lost sheep, someone that goes and looks for the lost coin. But in the last parable, no one looks for the son, the lost son. You know, no one goes and brings him back and then rejoices and then says, oh, wow, we found the son. And what happens, you know, is actually this older brother is almost being challenged. 
Wouldn't it be great if his older brother said to the father, "This is, again, not my idea. I heard this from Tim Keller, such a good sermon." He said, "You know, wouldn't it be great if the older brother said to the father, 'You know, let me go and look for him. I love him. Let me go and find him. Let me bring back, bring him back home. Let me use everything that I have to sacrifice so that I can bring him back home, back into the family." And in Jesus Christ, we have such an older brother. One who searches for the lost son and uses his own inheritance, uses his own life to restore the son back into the family. In Jesus Christ, we have this loving elder brother who gives his life, gives his sacrifice, gives his inheritance, so that we we who were lost might be found, so that we who were dead might be brought back to life and to relationship with our Father again. Yep. So that's Luke chapter fifteen. On to Job chapter thirty. But now they laugh at me, men who are younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to set with the dogs of my flock. What could I gain from the strength of their hands, men whose vigor is gone? Through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night. In waste and desolation, they pick salt wort, salt wort. And the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food, they are driven out from human company. They shout after them as after a thief. In the gullies of the torrents they must dwell, in holes of the earth and of the rocks. Among the bushes they bray, under the nettles they huddle together, a senseless, a nameless brood. They have been whipped out of the land, and now I have become their song. I am a byword to them. They abhor me. They keep aloof from me. They do not hesitate to spit at the sight of me, because God has loosed my cord and humbled me. They have cast off restraint in my presence. On my right hand, a rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me their ways of destruction. They break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come, amid the crash they roll on. Terrors are turned upon me; my honor is pursued as by the wind, and my prosperity has passed away like a cloud. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I've become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You've turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death and to the house appointed for all living. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand, and in his disaster cry for help? Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? But when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil and never still. Days of affliction come to meet me. I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I am a brother of jackals, 
and a companion of ostriches. My skin turns black and falls from me, and my bones burn with heat. My lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep. Hmm. How do we make sense of this? He describes people who used to be foolish. I guess they still are. You know, people who would、um, be considered foolish、uh, through want and hard hunger. They gnaw the dry ground by night in waste and desolation, a senseless and nameless brood. They've been whipped out of the land. So, people who do foolish things—they're eating. Um, I guess salt wood and leaves of bushes and roots of broom tree for their food. They are doing things which you're going. Why are they doing that? <laughs> that's crazy, you know. But now these people, whom everyone would say, you know, that's they're just weirdos. They're weird, you know. They're they're crazy. But now they are looking at Job and saying that he's crazy, and that's why it begins. But now they laugh at me. Men who are younger than me, whose fathers have disdained to set the dogs of my flock. You know, this whole generation, which in the past, you know, everyone would have looked at and considered as foolish, they now look at Job as foolish, and they, Job has become a byword to them. Verse ten: They abhor me; they keep aloof of me; they do not hesitate to spit at my sight. Hmm. I guess Job is maybe referring to his friends. <laughs> Who you know now are you know speaking out of foolishness because they think because Job is suffering before them, Job is lower than them. Therefore, they've absolved themselves. But actually, no, you're just revealing your foolishness.、Uh, and the reason they do this is again because of God's punishment. Because God has loosed my cord and humbled me, they have cast off restraint in my presence. So they take God's punishment upon Job as.、Um, A license, as approval for them to look down on Job as well.、Uh, really dangerous thing to do, you know, to see someone who is suffering and you know can't retaliate and say, okay, right now, now is my chance to like take revenge and look down on that person and pour out all the insults on this person because you know they were so proud before and you know, they thought they were right, but now is my chance to say all the things I wanted to say against that person. Verse twelve. On the right hand, the rabble rise. They push away my feet. They cast up against me in their way of destruction. So there's this intentional, like、uh, malice, that's that's that in these actions against Job. You know, they break up my path. They promote my calamity. They need no one to help them. As through a wide breach they come amid the crash, they roll on. So they keep pouring out hatred, and they keep doing everything they can to to. Do what they think God is allowing them to do, because God has allowed this suffering to fall on Job. And therefore, you know, Job turns from speaking to these people, who are what shall we call them? They, they take advantage of him. They are, I don't, know, I don't know if there's a word for it. People who take advantage of someone else, the opportunists, maybe.、Uh, but now he turns from that. He turns to God Himself. In verse nineteen, God has cast me into the mire, and I become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help; you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. And so, in a way, 
Job is saying, what triggers this is actually God's hand of judgment against him that he cannot resist. You know, he um, and he will carry on all the way to death. Verse twenty-three: For I know that you will bring me to death, and to the house of appointed living. And so the rest of it is his cry to God. You know, why is this happening? You know, did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Meaning, when Job was in that situation before someone else, when he saw someone like Job, when he could do something about it, he would weep over them. He would help them. He would console them. You know, but when it was his turn, verse twenty-six, when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for light, darkness came. My inward parts are in turmoil, never still. Days of affliction come. To meet me, and so there's this then unfairness that Job is feeling now. You know, it's bad enough that he is suffering and is he's suffering unjustly, but at the very least, you would you would hope that he receives some comfort, you know, some kind of consoling that he himself gave to others who were in a similar situation. But none of none of that is now available to him, and so it's doubly unjust for him to suffer not because of his、uh, for anything wrong he did. But also not to have comfort and friendship and mercy during this time of need. He says, "I go about darkened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help." So it's darkness because of absence <laughs> of of help, absence of light. I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. I don't I don't quite get this. I don't know what the companion of ostriches is. <laughs> Maybe ostriches don't get help.、Um, My skin turns black and falls from me. My bones burn with heat. The lyre is turned to mourning, and my pipe to the voice of those who weep.、Hmm. So really, really, whole chama Job.、Um, he is not receiving the comfort that he used to give. He used to be just, but now he's not shown justice. He used to be wealthy and blessed, and now he's suffering. But that's not his complaint. It's not that he now doesn't have the comforts of his day, but that when he was in that position, he showed justice, he showed mercy, he was a friend. But now that he's here, he needs friendship, he needs justice, he needs comfort. He has none from his friends, and in a sense, none from God. And that's the essence of his complaint from chapter thirty, one Corinthians sixteen. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Hmm, really interesting. So this is about money, about something called the collection. Usually we what take an offering in church, but actually a collection is the biblical term. Yes and no. Well, this collection is not the kind of regular collection that you would take for church. You know, to support ministry in church, to pay your pastors for the building work, upkeep, that kind of thing. But this is a specific purpose that Paul has in bringing help to Jerusalem. There's famine in Jerusalem. We know this from Romans.、Uh, Uh, and Paul is making his way through all the Macedonian churches and collecting aid, and that's why he can't he can't go to Corinth at this point of time. He sends Timothy instead, but he says, you know, when he does come,、uh, 
he wants to be able to take up this collection, but he doesn't want to want them to do this. You know, take out their pocket. Oh, here you go, Paul. Here's the money. He wants them to do this in advance, collect it in advance, so that verse two, there there may be no collecting when I come. So he wants them to store it up, put it aside, so that there's this pool of money he can just take it and go. And when he goes, you know, he will go. He will send that money with their own people. So it will be um, there's this kind of accountability with the money. You'll be with their own people. You'll be carrying carried by with this letter of authenticity. And if it seems advisable, you know, they will also accompany me. So he doesn't just take the money, but actually, he actually he does this. Actually, he actually gathers representatives of all the churches that have uh, collected this aid in order to bring to Jerusalem. Now, the significance of this is that all these churches are Gentile churches, including Corinth, and they were giving money to this Jewish church. So there's this specific purpose. So yes, you know, using the words like collection is a good idea, but no, this is actually not talking about the regular giving. This is for a specific purpose. So it's not about paying pastors. It's not about church upkeep again. But uh, it is for mercy, you know, that particular emergency that's happening in Jerusalem. There's this famine, and Paul explains in Romans, you know, if we've received a material, spiritual blessing from them, we should also share in the material blessing with them. So this is what the Gentile churches are doing for their Jewish brothers, whom they've never met, whom they don't know. Uh, it will almost be like imagine, you know, all. The missions that are going out of UK now, you know, they're sending missions out to I don't know where, Malaysia, Singapore. But then suddenly UK gets into trouble, you know, they fall into a famine, and suddenly they get aid from <laughs> from Malaysia, from Singapore, from China. You know, all these Christians who have, in a sense, benefited from that mission, but now are re- not returning a favor. That's not they they're they're sharing the blessings that they've received. Not just the spiritual, but also the material. And this is the right thing to do. I think it's the generous thing to do. Yep. So that's the collection. Verse five. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. So yeah, I mentioned that. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even win- spend the winter, so that you may be- help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Let him help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but he was not at all his will to come. Now he will come when he has an opportunity. Let me look at this footnote. Or not God's will for him to come now. So he could either be his will or God's will. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. I love this verse, verse fourteen. Let everything you do, you know, do it in love. You know that motivation actually counts. Whether it's helping someone, something that you say to someone, you know, it might sound really good, it might be very good, but do it out of love. You know, you actually love that brother or sister in Christ. Verse fifteen. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And that they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject 
to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they've made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people, you know, such people like Stephanus. Um, they've devoted themselves, verse 15, to the service of the saints. So this could mean that they're their pastors or maybe even their elders. You know, they've devoted themselves, you know, their job, their primary service in this church is to actually serve the members of this church by leading them i think and also by supporting paul so they went to see paul and provided him support and he says you know you should respect such leaders you be, should be subject subject to such leaders you know um, be submissive and respect their authority paul talks about quite a few people here just to review he talks about timothy he's sending timothy to them he, he mentions in chapter 4 to remind him of its way of life but possibly also uh, to carry this letter. It's possible that Timothy actually brought this letter to Corinth. And so he says, don't despise him. <laughs> you know, treat him well, you know, uh, so that he can return to me. You know, don't kill him or don't do anything to him because this is quite a strong letter. So don't retaliate with what I say in this letter against Timothy. Uh, also, he mentions Apollos. He actually urged Apollos to go to them. And it's interesting because, you know, Apollos was one of those factions in this church. You know, I am for Apollos, I'm for Cephas, I'm for Paul. Actually, Paul and Apollos have no problems. Paul actually wants Apollos to go to his church, to build them up. But for some reason or other, you know, he isn't able to come. It could be God's will, it could be his will, but he will come when there's that opportunity. And finally, he ends with their own leaders. You know, so in other words, he's talking about all these Christian leaders, Christian servants, which he commends, which he's partners with, and which he says, you know, you should, uh, you know, love them as you love me, pay them the due respect, and show them the kind of love that you would for, you know, people who are serving you in Christ. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I've always wondered about this, this holy kiss. And every time I hear a sermon on this, they say, you know, it's like a handshake. You know, doing something that in their culture, it meant, you know, it was a greeting of love. A holy kiss for us would be a handshake, maybe a hello brother, that kind of thing. Um, but it sounds really intentional. He says, why would he say just greet one another, like good morning? Sometimes, you know, you have these live streams and you have people go, Good morning, good morning, yep. And actually, we should be almost intentional in the way that we would want to convey that greeting and that welcome to one another and says, you know, thank you so much. And I thank God for you. I thank you so much that we are together in this. And whenever we see each other, this greeting again, we should say, wow, you know, it's good to see you. And to be not too British about good morning, how are you, that kind of thing. But actually, actually really greet one another. Really thank God that there's this opportunity to meet. And I hope that happens. You know, when we meet together again, if this lockdown ever lifts soon enough. Uh, but actually, I think that can happen, you know, with whatever Zoom or YouTube Live kind of situation. You know, that can happen too, right? I mean, sometimes we just hide behind anonymity. But actually, why not say hello? Say, hey, hello. You know, this is this this is biblical. You know, greet one another with that holy text <laughs> or something. Do something to show that you're really rejoicing 
in this gathering with one another, that this other person is there together with you. And so you're greeting them, you're giving them this holy holy kiss. And Paul is doing this from a distance. You know, he's doing this through comments, through text. You know, you know Aquilipus, Prisca, they're greeting you, you know, um, uh, and all their brothers, they're greeting you. They're giving you this, this um, holy kiss from a distance. And so all the more you who are together, you know, greet one another and treasure one another in your relationships with one another. Verse 21, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. O Lord, come, Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. So Paul ends with this signature because probably this letter was dictated and someone else wrote. And then he says, he write this last, this last bit. He writes it in his own signature. Just to say that this is really from me. And just to add his own personal you know, flavor and trademark to the letter. And he ends with this interesting prayer benediction. Verse 22, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Again, this idea of love in 1 Corinthians is so, so important. You know, to love one another above the gifts, above the status, above the ability to impress one another. You know, love one another. And if you don't love God, let this person be cursed by God and then he cries out Maranatha come Lord Jesus it's almost a cry for help (laughs) God help us Jesus please come back this is almost unbearable the situation maybe where you know Christians aren't loving one another they aren't greeting one another they aren't loving you in the in, in a way that shows that you know you are our treasure you are our Lord And he ends with the grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Notice again that love, you know, verse 14, let everything be done in love. Verse 20, greet one another with a holy kiss, this greeting of love. If you don't have love, let him be accursed. And finally, my love be with you all. And the same, you know, the grace of Jesus be with you. My love be with you in Christ Jesus. It's almost one and the same, you know, that we mediate Christ's grace through our love. We mediate Christ's presence and his word and his will, you know, by the way in which we live it out and we speak it out in relationship with one another. Yeah. And that's 1 Corinthians. And why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, help us to love one another with this amazing and very real love in relationship with one another. Help us to find opportunities to greet one another with a holy kiss. Help us to support one another, this collection that shares material blessing since we've received spiritual blessings in Christ. And help us, Lord, to see this all as your love, your grace, your mercy shown to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Bye, 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 bye.